Hello, and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference here on the Art of the Frame podcast feed. Uh, if you don't know, uh, Frame and Reference is a weekly cinematography podcast distributed uh, by Pro Video Coalition here. And uh, we talk to cinematographers primarily, but sometimes directors, you know, production designers, maybe anything around the cinematography prod, uh, process. So in this episode with Steve DeBall, the founder and director of The Family of VFX House, um, we're talking about Molly and Max in the future, uh, as well as, you know, um, visual effects and virtual production and all that kind of wrapped into one. So if you are a post-production person with some production uh, interests, I think this will be a great episode. And like I said... Uh, if you're interested in cinematography, go ahead and follow us over on the Frame and Reference uh, podcast feed. You know, you can just search for that now. You can leave this playing. Go search. Be sure to subscribe. But uh, that's it for now. Um, so please enjoy this episode of Frame and Reference with Steve DeBall. Like you were saying, training your eye by using uh, your Instagram is like a 16 by 9 container. Um, I did something similar and because we just started recording Adam McDay told him to do that go listen to that episode but uh for a year I only did black and white to um just train my lighting eye because I, di I didn't I didn't feel comfortable with lighting and so like for a full year I only took photos in black and white from my phone to you know I have a little like a uh, Fujifilm X100 much to the chagrin of all of TikTok um and uh yeah there's certain I, I think I didn't do it this year necessarily besides trying to put just better photography on my Instagram, but I'm thinking doing the 16.9, because you can set those um, constraints in the Fujifilm cameras, you know, oh, I want to shoot yeah. one by one or 16 by nine or whatever. Um, it's a great training tool. It really is. And like treating like Instagram or something that's like not supposed to be used for that, it definitely like becomes kind of annoying because you're like all your friends are posting like normal photos and you're the fucking asshole who's spending way too much time like composing and editing an image for something that no one really sees or cares about but it's like yeah. it becomes like a thing for you which i feel like is a really i don't know i'm like very thankful that someone taught me hey you can use this thing for you it doesn't have to be like as social media which is kind of cool i feel like everything else in our world is very like i don't know consumed in that sense like i don't know how else i would find that yeah well and i think so weirdly enough uh, i used to work for i've said it a bajillion times on this fucking podcast but uh, I used to work for Red Bull, and that was why I got an Instagram, because uh, this was 2009, 10, something like that, and maybe 11. And Instagram was only on iPhone. And so yeah. Red Bull was like, you need to get an Instagram because this is like a thing that we're really going to champion. And and if you look back, like Red Bull really did push Instagram into people's heads because that's where they were posting all this cool action sports shit. But I didn't have an iPhone, so I had to get an iPod Touch, and that meant that I could only use it in my apartment. I didn't think to take it out and take photos and come back. You could, oh, you couldn't, you couldn't upload. Yeah, it you couldn't. Yeah, had to take yeah, the. Photo. You had to. So on my first like year, uh, was at my first photos of Red Bull came because I'm like in my apartment, like what do I do here? But I feel like now, a lot of most DPs kind of treat Instagram as a a portfolio as such, and and I almost yeah. find it more I, I like it more <laughs> that way i don't really i don't do a lot you know there's not a lot to share necessarily maybe, maybe. No, i like it more i just feel bad because i like sometimes i really quickly glaze over their instagram and then that's like that's how i'm making a decision it's like 
it feels like casting, like it's a little dirty. Like I'm just really quick surface level judging your portfolio. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Do you, I saw you shoot film a little bit, right? I do. Yeah. I, uh, uh more recently started to. Because you have one panoramic shot. I don't know. Was that like after the fact or you shot that in camera? Um, In camera. Yeah. So I, do you have a medium format camera? How'd you do that? So I recently found this company that lets you rent film cameras here in New York. And okay. they have a Hasselblad X-Pan you can rent, which I think is probably my dream film camera that I will probably never buy because it will cost me a fortune because you're paying double for developing and, and going through like that amount of film yeah i have a fujifilm gfx 50 and it had because the sensor's so fucking big it actually has a x-pan crop that's cool and uh especially if you have like the gfx 100 you know that's a solid 100 megapixels wide at least i don't know yeah you know 12 12 thousand pixels wide or something like that so it is like close but what I was going to say was, if you can get a hold of a medium format camera, I, I 3D print these little adapters that you can put on either side of a 35 canister and sp spool it into your medium format camera. And it'll not only shoot the panoramic, but the exposure will go past the sprockets because the imaging circle is oh. bigger than the film negative itself. Right. Um, and we never think of those two black strips as being photographable emulsion, but it is the whole thing is you know, sensitive. It's just got the holes punched out. So it gives you this yeah. really cool, I can like DM you some of the examples, but it's like, yeah, a, please do. I'm going to get addicted to it. Cause again, like the way Adam was like, train your eye this certain way. I've shot two, three, nine for so long that now like, that's how I can compose. So like, I ho hope to God, I don't have to be a cinematographer because there's people much more talented than me on projects. But when I am, it's like, I'm starting to be the only way I like see things now. Cause I've just done it for so long. Well, what's interesting is I was just talking to, uh, well, I don't know if these are going to come out in the right order, but I, but right before you got on, I was just talking to a gentleman who we were talking about how back in the film days, everything was in your head. And that was a skill that, what did he call it? The virtuosity of the, of the tool, you know, where you would look at a scene and know what your goal was, what you were thinking about and have to assemble it in a way that you wouldn't see like these days, everyone's looking at the monitor. Everyone and their mom is looking at the monitor and making little notes and saying stuff and, and less so that the magic is gone, but more so that when you are trained, when you're mentally trained in that way, in the way that you're saying with the, your, you know, your brain only thinks in two, three, nine. Now you're much more, uh, quickly able to construct those images. Um, because it's up here, you know, it's intrinsic now in you versus yeah having to constantly spot check yourself on the monitor. Yeah, that's really cool. I feel like that's like a, such a cool testament too to like what the iPhone did for us then that like the way like Artemis opened up this like scouting concept that like, yeah, just yeah. having a phone that I can create that aspect ratio to play with framing. That is probably crazy. I wonder if I didn't have that, if I would even have an inclination to care about that aspect ratio. Sure. Well, and the other thing too, so uh, you remember back in the day when we had the lens, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast too, the, uh, the old like lettuce or red rock lens adapters that you yeah, slap on the DV cam. I still so, have one that, well, I don't know why I still have it. Do you really? Yeah, I do. That's pretty cool. I mean, part of me was like, XL what if I mod it to an iPhone? Like, I don't know what to do with it, but it would be cool. It's, I mean, see, that's the thing is I, I do kind of get excited about 
repurposing technologies that still work. But what I was going to say was in regards to the iPhone changing the way we think, when we had the DV cams and you had to zoom into like fucking 100 millimeters to get any depth of field and you're putting the camera in the back of the room. And then we got those adapters, which still pretty decent crop and you lost like four stops of light, but everything was very zoomed in. And so even after we got like the 5D and stuff, people were still shooting on like 50s, 80s. And then the iPhone came out and now I'm seeing, not just now, but like in the past five, 10 years, I've seen this, everyone wants to shoot super wide. Everyone's looking for yeah. like a 24 or under. Yeah. Um, 24 is not particularly wide, but it does feel like because the tool that everyone is used to is the iPhone or the phone in general, which has a very wide field of view, that when people get a hold of DSLRs or video cameras or whatever, that's just what, how their brain thinks. So that's what they want to see. They want to see those very wide images. Yeah, that's so fascinating because I did just talk to a DP who owned a lens set and he had like an eight millimeter in his kit. And I was like, that's so crazy to own like that side of lensing. Like, I don't know, like coming up in lens kits, like it was... 35, I feel like was always your widest that you're yeah. right. Like now people have kits built out where they are going super wide. 18. So like, yeah, commercials are definitely doing that too. Well, commercials want to, I'm sure you've gotten this note as a commercial director, like, Hey, uh, we're shooting for both. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, all right. So this is going to have to be an 18 or under because you need to fit somehow fit a vertical crop into a heaven forbid a two, three, nine frame. Yeah. But Which I, there was also that era where we were putting our cameras sideways for a little bit, and then we completely threw that out. And we're like, we'll just shoot more resolution, and you guys figure that out. That's the other thing too is like, why if you're if it's going to be put on a, a vertical form, let's say Instagram, TikTok, or whatever, just slap a smaller, not even cheaper, just like you know, uh, even these days, like an FX3 is a very small camera that you could just strap to the side of your main cam and just. Look at them both real quick, frame them both up, have them aim relatively in the same area and fucking go. Like maybe shoot the w vertical a little wider so that you have some play if you're mainly focusing on the the main camera. But yeah, it's I don't know why it doesn't cost that much more. It really does not. But then you'd need another monitor and then they'd be looking at two monitors and their brains would explode. Yeah. <laughs> they can't handle that. I did want to know because I was looking at your website, like you've got some really cool um, commercial work on there. And I was wondering what, uh, like, not only how did you get into that work? Cause I feel like commercials and corporate stuff tends to be everyone's bread and butter, butter, certainly mine. Um, but I'm not, I'm not getting, you know, uh, Scarlett Johansson on any of my fucking commercials, you know, um, what, what, A, how did you get into that body of work? And B, uh, what are some of those, um, things that on those gigs, those, you know, your Macy's or whatever that you have to take into account that you don't with an independent film or what have you? Um, it's definitely a good question. I don't really know how I ended up in it because I always didn't like it. So it's kind of weird that I've, I've did so much of it. I think it's probably because I started a production company and the production company needed to make money. So like as we were pitching all these like nonfiction doc and, and actual narrative projects, commercials were the only way to do it when we started the idea was to do um music content so like tour right. visuals music videos things like that and that industry let's just say was not fruitful so i think 
that transition to commercial was probably just replacing the fact that we were like having to threaten to sue musicians to pay us because their managers weren't like deciding that they could give us money for a thing that they didn't like, but the musician did. And like, it got so ugly that I was like, okay, commercials are pretty clear cut where there is a budget and you can just execute it. And, and a deal memo. Happen. And a deal memo. And like, it's a very, it's a actual industry that I think has a lot of structure for what we do, at least. Like when I've like gone on tour with a musician, like what I'm doing is like, I can barely explain it myself. So I don't know how the hell the manager and the artist and all these people are explaining it. So I think it was just like by nature of waiting to get into long form and trying like to get in without having an agent and without having like the same type of connections that um, a lot of people can have that expedite their career. It was just like commercials just kind of naturally happen. Do you, but do you comparing f- them to indie, I have no idea. I mean, they're so different. Like, it's heartbreaking sometimes that, like, we'll get a commercial budget that's the same budget of, like, a feature we're pitching. <laughs> it's, like, the most gut-wrenching feeling of, like, oh, God, like, this one day could fund this indie feature. <laughs> right. And it's, like, just a photo of a box. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's vertical. Yeah. Well, because I was kind of wondering, like, you know, in, in on the one hand, you do have those much larger budgets, but on the other hand, you have constraints you know that are put upon you know uh, especially in post you know this color has to match this color and they're all looking at it on an ipad that's 12 years old and they're like it doesn't look good and you're like well get a better monitor um yeah but i was wondering if any of those uh, any of those constraints you find helpful um i think so i mean i think i love indie because there's so many constraints and it kind of becomes like a team sport i i like that at least the commercials that I get to do tend to be nonfiction. So there's the constraint of reality, which tends to like wrangle in a lot of clients. Um, when I have to do things that are a little more like visual effects or or green screen territory, most of the time, like there's just so much of that like pixel pushing and like people really like being nitpicky over every little detail that for some reason, whenever it's nonfiction, I get to like skirt around that. Like mm-hmm. that I don't have to really... I'm just guiding the talent. I'm not like telling them exactly what to say. So like the client can only tell me so much before it starts getting like, well, it's the talent is going to do what they're going to do. And we're just trying to like capture their story. And I think I then become like a in between for just like representing what the talent wants, but then also being there to make sure the client is, is happy with how that talent's representing the brand. Right. And as, uh, when you say talent, when, uh, are these more like docu style commercials where that talent is a regular person let's say versus an actor that you fired yeah pretty much like even it's like for scarlett johansson it was like her promoting a product and just capturing her promoting that product nicely uh or for macy's it's it was like a series of designers and those designers talking about the designs they did but them just authentically doing that and i think there's a lot of times which is why i'm thankful for having worked in commercials where something can feel branded really quickly. So when it's like a combination of a brand paying for a human to talk about something, I now get to be that in-between of saying, okay, I don't want it to feel like Macy is forcing a product on you, but I do want this person to actually have their voice represented. What's the balance between finding that? What's what's the way that we can film it in a way that feels really authentic and really cool and actually interesting, but at the same time is like a real story and we're not kind of giving you a, a quick ad that comes and goes. Yeah. Uh, 
in in regards to that uh was it lux uh commercial with with scarlet um how much of because i think this is something that a lot of uh, dps but directors certainly think about when potentially getting it what is ostensibly a beauty campaign or something where you know in, in a in a film your ta- you want your talent to look their best but sometimes they have to look kind of gross in something like that it they need to look magazine ready so i was wondering how much of that comes down to the lighting and if you remember like how things were lit that would be a, a great addition but uh and how much of that are you finishing up in post especially with your background like i'm, I'm sure you have i'm sure we all have access to nearly the same tools but more knowledge in how to sculpt um the image to make that person look the way you need them to Definitely. I think that too is like my background in post-production is probably why I'm so attracted to nonfiction projects because I spent <laughs> you don't have to year, do it. <laughs> yeah. A year having to make people look pretty of like this celebrity looks horrible out of camera. And then it's like now make them look like a perfect Barbie skinned individual. And I think that work is so grueling and people don't really understand. Like it's crazy. I was uh, talking to someone about like uh, an action movie and they were like there was too much like cg in it and we just got into this whole thing that i was like literally every frame of everything you see is cg like i there is no such thing as a music video that like that artist is not touched up um so for things like that like that project specifically the creative director was matthew rolston who's this like iconic photographer so that was like very much his look and and gotcha. he's a master of beauty lighting so i got to uh, in college, I had a um, uh, a scholarship with Matthew Ralston, and he pretty much just taught me how do you become. So he's interesting. Like he was a photographer and then became a creative director. So I think too, a lot of my career is similar to this idea that like I don't really know what he does because he does everything, and I've mm. started to find myself in that realm where I'm like at times I'm a filmmaker, but then other times I'm like a virtual production supervisor and then other times I'm just a creative director who's like guiding a creative team so like he taught me of like how do you learn a little bit of everything and then you can kind of execute on it and his secret was he's a master of lighting and that was his through line so like he was creative directing hotels but he was making sure the lighting in that hotel was the exact same as the lighting being used for Sofia Vergara or Scarlett Johansson and so his like secret sauce was like all lighting and that's kind of the thing that like ran throughout this multifaceted career that he's had. Yeah. Do you have any uh, lighting tips that come to mind that surprised you about uh, his method without obviously giving away uh, stuff you'd be mad about? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know if he'd be mad about it. He's like really proud of the fact that like he does this beauty lighting where it's like one massive source right above the camera. That's like always been his technique. Like he did it for Beyonce. He did it for like, like a ceiling or like above the camera aimed like as close to the lens as possible, right above the camera, a massive soft source. So okay. whether that's like, uh, I mean, he was using a lot of strobes, but like, I mean, on sets, it would be literally just like the physically largest and lumen brightest source, and then just like diffuse the hell out of it. And then just as close to camera as possible. So it, it's the funniest looking lighting setup you can do, but it would create just this like perfect skin glow and it's very much like that like old hollywood effect and it's kind of similar like when we do beauty work i'm essentially adding like a consistent color on top of your blemishes so it's kind of doing the same thing where it's just like adding softness and adding like consistency 
And then from there, you can start playing with like shadows and, and lines and all that stuff. Well, that does seem to be kind of the the light du jour right now, like plenty of DPs I've spoken to. And and it, I'm not trying to be uh, reductive because it works every time and it makes a lot of people happy, but you just get like a 12 by, put it on the side of the, you know, as close as you can to the actor, light the shit out of it. And then you've got a great natural soft looking source, you know? Yeah. And that's like it's the rarely I use the most. He's literally just like, how do you do one giant source and then kind of like figure out the rest? And I've always loved that way of lighting where it's just like gigantic light and then kind of like play and sculpt off just that one like it stresses me out when i have like a dp who just puts like a million lights everywhere because like i know i'm gonna change it and i know that's gonna make you bad like no right. question about it i I was just talking to someone uh not on the podcast amazingly enough but uh about how i got a I did get a compliment for my corporate work uh and they're like oh it looks like a movie and I know, well, and then so I did a different one and uh, I was just like the camera operator and this DP was just really stressing about the light. And this is like a really big company. Um, and they, but it was like very, very low budget. There's like four of us. And uh, which is, you know, isn't that always the case? You make a billion dollar uh, product and we can't anyway. Uh, but they were really stressed out about how the lights that I brought that they rented from me didn't have enough punch didn't have enough this, that, and the other, and we're banging every, like, Kino flow panels into the wall and the ceiling, and I'm just like, just get it close and dim it down so it's big, and they're like, no, 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 that's that's too hard, and I was like, well, okay, and then I'm looking at the thing that I shot with one Kino panel close, dimmed to the approach, and I'm like, sometimes, I guess this is, like, freeing, but I don't think a lot of people believe it, but it's kind of what you're saying is, like, the more expert you guess, the get you the less you need to get the same look. Like a million lights, I'm sure gives you the exact thing you want, but sometimes it's just like all you need is a light meter, yeah, and just be sure of things, you know, and a color meter too. Personally, but yeah, no, and you're like the sun is there most of the time too, so it's like that's a f light that I'm like sometimes I'll go on set, I'm like where the hell are the lights, and like this person's good enough to just use the sun. And I'm like that is kind of crazy that like I feel like coming up you you need the three lighting kit and then yep. need the extra rentals and like you show up with all this stuff and and then it's like oh you get really good and you're like i actually don't need any of that <laughs> i just need a bounce card yeah well what who was it uh oh actually well bam now i'm just referencing every interview i've ever done um uh what was his name alejandro mejia said that he he shot um king of monarchs something like that and uh something monarchs and he was saying that someone he taught and or taught him and it could have been Vitar Storaro or someone like that. But basically, if you have two lights, you have two problems. If you have one light, you have one problem. Yeah, I love you that. know really simplify like simplifying and being accurate. Nine times out of ten, and like you say, the the guy with the giant softbox up top like probably does ninety percent of the work, and then you just accent a little bit if you need a little scratch or whatever. Yeah, just a little back. I mean, that's like the thing, like when we started doing the LED stage, it was just like, oh yeah, you just have like one giant light source. And then it's like, oh, now this is a very different way of thinking how to light because everything is lit now. Mm -hmm. And then now what do you do for lighting? So that's been like really crazy to see the opposite problem where you have like everything's a light. And then now you have to figure out how to light. <laughs> 
very yeah. different than turning off all the lights, adding a light, and then building off that. Yeah, because with um, with the old uh, Molly and Max, you guys did not just volume, but you were doing rear projection and green screen and all kinds of random shit, right? Yeah, so my team did the LED uh, week, and then the rest was on another stage for rear projection and green screen. Um, we did some green screen stuff on the LED screen just for the sake of like those plates weren't finished yet, but it was really split between like a lot of different worlds that I wish we could have done LED screen for the full time, but like schedule wise, we literally only had one week that we could do it um, before the screens had to go back to the vendor. So it was like super, re- literally finished and then the next day they like got on a truck to Hacked them up. go back. It was yeah, very tight turnaround. But that was like amazing to see the DP, who was also the visual effects supervisor, somewhat of mm-hmm. a cheat code, be able to have an understanding of how to match LED world, rear projection world, like change different cameras, like kind of swap between gear. But like he matched um, a lot of scenes and worlds for each piece of gear. So in the movie, you really would never know that this world looks so different from that world, but that's because all the gear and the way of filming it was totally different. Yeah, because you, you, uh, I, I actually just listened, like, 20 minutes ago, listened to the uh, befores and afters interview you did. Um, and I, I also would not have known that y'all used, like, five different cameras, different vendors, yeah. different everything. Yeah, which is, I don't know. It's a huge compliment, but also, like, a big realization that, like, oh, yeah, if you're resourceful, it's you can kind of just do it this way which again is why i have like so much i don't know a lot of weird feelings towards commercial because i'm like we have an insane amount of money to do this thing and then you have this beautiful sci-fi rom-com and you're like okay how do we pull every string we can to make this thing possible and that's like what you were saying before those limitations did create uh, a lot of unique ideas and, and ways of working yeah the uh how how did you I have a problem where I'll have like three thoughts at once and then I just have to pick one. Uh, <laughs> but uh, how how were you able to glean anything off how the DP was matching, you know, the foreground actors, whatever uh, production to the volume? Because um, I think a lot of people are excited to get into a, a volume situation because it's the new cool toy. But from what I've seen and heard, uh, it is it is not show up set up can't everything works there's like a lot of stuff to get it all to like actually sell like the mandalorian is not oh yeah put up an unreal background drop mando in it and (laughs) ta-da yeah i know that's like the biggest misconception that exists with led stages is like it's all done in camera this movie was for the most part final pixel but also it doesn't look like a marvel movie so it leaned into the fact that we could do that. But like, if you think that you can get Mandalorian just by showing up, it's like such a misconception. It's also terrifying because these stages are so expensive that you do need more time. And by asking for more time, you do substantially increase your budget. So it's somewhat of like a logistic thing of being like, okay, you need to like prep on these things to get a sense of it. And that's kind of like the the thing we did for Molly and Max was the gaffer on the movie. We've worked with him for a year on the stage so he knew how to light this way the dp we had come in for like a lot of pre-production and was just like find your look figure out your color science like play on the walls the director was in there with a camera we would be like 
set up your shots. We'll use a black magic, even though on the day we'll use a red. Like, how do we use whatever gear is available just to like find that look and feel? And then that's kind of where a lot of that like development came from. And then it pretty much was like, yeah, that year of year and a half of of R and D for prepping the movie was kind of where we found that look and feel for how to like merge physical and the backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. You had mentioned in uh, the befores and afters interview, and I'm going to give that guy, uh, Ian, just as much uh, free press as he needs. Cause I have all the, I have all of the, cin- not all of the cin effects. I have most of the cin effects down here. Uh, hundreds of yep. American cinematographers, but when cin effects went out of business, I had just subscribed. So I, I, I got, I think it started at like one, 162 and then yeah. boop. and so i called them and i was like how many do you have and, and they sent me a bunch and then i got like a couple duplicates and i was like can i trade these in before like the warehouse closes and the woman on the other end was so fucking nice she goes all right here's the deal i found a very old box uh i'll just give them to you and so i have like i think the first one i have like the ones that they were like no one can you know like indiana jones and star That's wars and stuff so they were like cool. but Ian's carrying that uh, legacy out, yes. and so I, I just want to give him a bunch of credit. But yes, Ian is uh, amazing. Everyone should go buy Before's and Afters magazine. Yeah, you can get them on Amazon. You can get them on Amazon. Not, not a worry. Um, I need a T-shirt. I need a Before's and Afters T-shirt because uh, I just wear a lot of fucking free T-shirts. I'll buy the T-shirt. But uh, anyway, in that interview, you're talking about how. Um, when you're on the volume that, you know, you'd be shooting through glass or whatever, and you were just kind of dimming down a LUT or, or changing the intensity of a LUT to kind of match the background of the foreground. Um, but that brought up a thought for me, which was, uh, in your knowledge, do people shoot in like aces or something like that generally where the background is in a, let's say, log format to match the foreground or, or is the ba- is, are LED walls always in, let's call it 709? Um, this is such a good question that no one ever asks us because it's super dependent on the DP and the colorists. So it doesn't have a good answer, which is why it's such a cool thing to talk about. Um, at least in the LED work we've done, uh, you can pick how you like to work. And a lot of that depends on if you want final pixel and if your colorist has the time to also be a part of your prep process for Molly and Max in the future. Uh, Zach knew the colorist, so was able to put up content, uh, put up a camera with the content, and then give the DP those two things, and then let them decide what that LUT could look like so that they could have all of the content have the option for a LUT or to be raw. So that's kind of like those, it's very confusing. I actually have a chart that I need to use to remember Um, Because you can either have your background colored in one color temperature and then your foreground in another and then you do some magic or you have everything in the same color space and then same goes for raw. You can either like shoot your background raw and your footage raw and then you're putting a LUT on top. But then sometimes if your color space isn't perfect, which is the idea of Asus, you can figure out how to make it work. Asus has honestly been too complicated for us to work with consistently. I think if we were at the scale of stagecraft or someone who is doing this on a really big level where we could have like color scientists involved in our pipeline, it'd be super easy to be like, ACES is the way to go. It works across everything. But 
for this movie and most other indie movies, it's like to even throw that at your colors that you're probably having them work for a discounted rate is like a really tough thing because you're probably not going to like nail it on the fact that every piece of content goes out perfect and then every piece of footage is going to be done perfect. Yeah, it, it's I, uh, I freelance colorist on this. I am a freelance colorist on the side because, uh, you know, I've had to make my own stuff for years and being a DP, you know, you're a lot of times I'll be the editor as well. And I'm like, I should just learn resolve. And then that was a good skill to have during the pandemic. But uh, I remember when Aces came out, all these like, let's call them YouTubers, but all these like indie colorists were like, oh, we're all doing it in Aces now. And I'm like, why? It's just yeah. your camera. You're not using it to like match with anyone else. And also all the tools act different. Aces yeah. like behaves differently in Resolve than every other tool. And it's not like, I don't feel like it's worth learning until you need it. Just Which even like the LED processors had like a Asus workflow, but then it was different than the Asus CG that Unreal uses. And then that was different than the Asus that was in like all the NLEs. So then I was like AP zero or whatever AP one. Yeah, I was like, this doesn't help anyone. I was I love the idea, but I was like, I'm amazed that like, yeah, Simpty or someone who I've talked to of like trying to get involved of like how do we create a consistency for this? Because I think the problem with at least the world we're in is the fact that the LED side does not speak the language of the film side, which barely speaks the language of the post-production side. So like it's still like a, a couple different industries combining. So I think we're just like a little too eager to want it to all play together because these are just like massive companies and industries that don't right. talk to each other. Like us having to have like Red to explain to us why we can't change the the sensor refresh was like asking the most insane concept ever because we had a set of LED screens that every time you turned on the camera the sensor refreshes and that could knock the sync off your LED panels. Mm. So we're like, hey, could we just make it so consistently the refresh maybe starts the same or catches up to sync or whatnot? And that was like, we talked to every camera manufacturer. We talked to like probably a dozen different LED manufacturers trying to find a way to solve this. And the solution was get a Komodo. How was the solution? For the global shutter? For the global shutter. And then we're like, wow, there isn't even many global shutter camera options. So... It feels a lot of like DIY versions of of these things until these companies kind of get it together for us. Yeah. Well, and I, I love the team at Red, but there is a lot of time where it feels like they're being intentionally obfuscative, if that's a word, where it's like, can you just speak to me in English instead of like trying to make it sound really cool? Because yes, it's very cool. The technology is very cool, but I would love it to just have a frank conversation with you about these yes. fucking cameras. Which like that felt with the same way with the LED screens of like the press around Mandalorian, like it's all like so markety. And then yeah. we were like, the literally the only thing is just like get on a stage or set up a TV and a camera and like start seeing how it works because that was the only way we could like train our people on it. Because it's like as much of the research I did, things would break and not look good in ways that I couldn't even have expected would be mm -hmm. the case for it. Like what? Um. Honestly, a lot of it was like nothing matters until you have talent in front of you, which is a very unfortunate reality because a lot of the intrigue is pre-pro is, is kind of a really cool process now. Like instead of you like scribbling and then giving an overhead and then figuring out storyboards and like all this stuff that's kind of like pen and paper that gets 
grown out every step of the process. It's very like cohesive throughout the process that you can kind of work in Unreal and build these environments and scout and do all this like remote stuff. Like the second you have talent and lighting in front of the screen, like almost none of the pre-pro stuff you did matters because the perspective can look different. The foreground can look different. Like the lighting in the DP's head versus the lighting that um, someone could set up just on stage uh, is going to change the look completely. And that's where a lot of those um, foreground things come into play. Like you could just have some overhead lights and have all the screens on. But then if you come in and want that lighting to be a different direction, which marketing material for virtual production is you can move the sun and sky wherever you want. (laughs) The lighting in the room like also has to get adjusted for that. So those things just need to be dialed in early, which was kind of why we had the confidence to build a small stage was so that we could just get people on it and be able to prep on it and that like yeah, yeah. a gaffer could ex- experience what that's like sure and it, so that makes me think of two things one going back to the idea of all these companies are brand new unreal i'm sure did not think when they built five that it was going to be used in film production more than video i don't even know a single video game that is currently using unreal five yeah a lot of people are talking about making the, you know porting over my buddy makes a game called um uh uh sessions is a skateboarding video game really fun uh very technical you know it's like built for skateboarders but they're in the process of moving everything over to unreal 5 and it's take i don't know how long it's taken them but the game took fucking two years and now they're like up oh, now we gotta recycle all the assets out to five but i guess it'll be a more fun game that way but there's that but also um how how long did you have you might have said it already but how long did you have prepo and how big sorry how long did you have pre-production for shooting on the vol- your volume and how big was that test volume? Because I imagine you had to keep everything kind of compact for budgetary purposes. Yeah, definitely. Um, we pretty much had, so we had our LED stage for like two years. Um, okay. Now we're doing it remote. So we're popping up like per ask, um, which is great because right now nothing is filming. So we're not just burning money having a, a standing stage not getting used. Um, but we well, had so you owned the stage two years. Yeah, we we uh, set it up. It was like during the pandemic. Um, we started doing it. I did this like long, it's like five hour live stream uh, with all these celebrities. That was like a scientist talking about climate change, mixing with uh, celebrities. Part was. of it, yeah, it's called Make Earth Cool Again. Make Earth. Um, which was with like Rain Wilson, a bunch of celebrities. And we kind of like got into this like live streaming thing because the world was shut down and no one was filming. And then during that, we were like, okay, how do we keep making movies? And we were like, we could become an animation studio or we could dip into this world of doing LED screens. Um, And after that project, we were like, we still want to work with humans and animation studio seems like we'll all just be in our houses alone. So we took the risk right after that job of setting up our own stage um, and kind of just pulled all the pieces together, which is Mm -hmm. its own long story. But during that, we were prepping a feature that was like about to happen. It was like almost there, just need a last bit of funding and they couldn't get this last bit of funding. Uh, So we just shot an indie version of that feature, which ended up being Molly and Max in the future. So they had a year and a half of us with the stage to kind of pop in, 
come in every couple months, do some tests, go home, edit it, test, go to colorist, kind of just like open door policy with them while we had the stage. So throughout that process, they were just building content, testing stuff. We were working on other projects with the gaffer of that movie on the stage. So that meant on production, he kind of knew how things were working. And so it was just as long as possible of letting them in, which is why it's kind of a hard process to replicate in a rental way, because I'm not really sure how we would have done this again. I would honestly say it makes sense to build a stage per movie rather than just like go to a stage and say, hey, I need like an absurd amount of time prepping. Like that would just be a really big negotiation to create with a stage partner that is somewhat uncommon that I yeah. know of. I was, uh, I went to the Kino Flow party at Cinegear right before it and they had, uh, oh, I can't remember the company, but they had this big ass truck that had a volume built inside it. And yeah. then they, you know, drove a car in there and their process. And I think everyone immediately thinks of process shots when it yep. comes to these things. But I was looking at that and going, what else could you do with us with a volume that kind of small, you know, like granted you could do if you have like a, a intimate drama, you could just, instead of, you know, you could just have people sitting at tables and like, you know, yeah. if you, couches or whatever, but yeah, I, I could imagine like for a feature, you know, the Batman, let's say they had to build a whole, instead of a, what they call it? A Vista light. They just used a screen. So it's yeah. just a, it is a fascinating thing of like, you either have to go huge or, you know, LG C1 just right behind someone's head and go, that's good enough. Yes. I know that's like the hard part is like, what is the size you need, which is in that previs process of having to like actually map that out. Cause it does kind of break your brain. Like flipping the world is really easy now, but it is like that like gets your footprint down. But I feel like it's so much work, at least when we have to like in SketchUp with production design figure out like okay what needs to be real and what can be virtual um because i mean we did the whole movie our wall was like 50 by 12 foot so it's pretty long so we could fit a car and then our ceiling was like your spaceship apologies it's a spaceship (laughs) uh and our ceiling was like three meters by three meters and then we had these like two meter by two meters panels that were just kind of like floating around so those were our like specialty shots stuff right i mean it i mean we shot like so much stuff in there we did like this huge campaign for like jose cuervo where they needed to film in like uh los angeles miami and chicago or something was like it's like a localized campaign and so we were able to jump between like a bar to a restaurant to an outside like really quickly um in that small of a space so like we covered a lot of ground but it definitely gets tight once you go to like bigger things but i mean we would do like yeah multiple people in a restaurant no problem like people walking and talking no problem like anything like two to five people i feel like we're good but if you need like a massive crowd scene then it gets interesting because you're like if you could get well optimized fake people in the background we could have done that on that stage but that was kind of like a bit of a difficult one to pull off so I feel like there is when you kind of want to go to a bigger footprint. Sure. Was there uh, anything, obviously, like doing that much prep and and experimentation must have been educational, uh, you know, stuff that you could carry on into further gigs. But was there anything specific that you kind of learned through that experience that um, you think, you know, like, oh, this this applies to everyone trying to do this? 
yeah, it's like, it's not a great thing, but it was like, everyone needs to start learning these tools because the DP was, he learned Unreal and made the backgrounds. And that was the only way that both I or him could guarantee it looked like what was in his head. Um, I'm seeing like kids doing it, which is awesome. Like people in college that I'll meet, they're learning Unreal already and they're cinematographers and that like makes sense in their head. There's like this other world that I came up in where I don't really want to learn Unreal. But now I genuinely am like, I do have to learn it because if I can say, hey, here's my script and all my environments and all my things made, it's a lot easier of a pitch compared to, oh, we'll just hire someone to build it all out and do all that stuff, which we probably will. But me having it and building it and pre-visiting it, uh, it feels like when I went to school, like I was the last section of like people who like had to know how to edit because Mm -hmm. like I went into school with people who didn't know how to edit. But then like a year after that, like every, like if you didn't know how to edit, that was super weird to be like a director or a DP who didn't know how. Now it's like, you just have to know how Premiere DaVinci works just by nature. Well, and I've always said that being a good editor makes you a way better DP and and probably director as well. Um, But yeah, I remember when I was in college, they were like, you have to learn Final Cut because this will be what we use forever. Avid is dead. And then like the second I ended college, they were like, ooh, wait, Premiere's back. You know? Final Cut sucks. And like Avid had a weird resurgence for a little bit. And they're like, you now have to learn Avid again. And they're like, just kidding. Premiere's the thing. Oh, yeah. I was like, so strange. I hope that doesn't happen where it's like we all learn Unreal and like it's awesome. And then Unity comes out of nowhere. And now it's like, oh, everyone has to learn Unity. But right now it's like to know to at least be comfortable in a virtual space that is doing real-time animation and with accurate lighting, I think is probably the biggest thing I learned that everyone should at least just be comfortable in that program. So like if I could send you a file and you can add lights and move lights and just if that little workflow doesn't stress you out, then I think that's how things are going to have to go. Gotcha. Yeah, I remember uh, same thing back in college. I was the only kid who... uh... Well, I've I've talked to the guy who created After Effects. So I don't feel bad saying this. Uh, stole After Effects because uh, <laughs> I did an interview with him, and he was like, "Yeah, I mean that's going to happen because your kids you don't have money, but then when they get to the job, they already know the program, so it's a net benefit." So he actually wasn't too stressed out about people stealing CS6 or whatever, but um, or the Creative Suite. But I love everyone at Adobe. Please don't beat me up. Um, but I was the only kid who knew After Effects, and the thing that everyone wanted for their senior films or even their projects was uh we had all just seen like moon and there was like one other movie where the titles were like floating in the environment oh Oh, that was man was that ever the coolest fucking thing in 2000 yeah it was (laughs) and it was behind the building right it cast a shadow on the floor oh that took me forever to learn how to make that fake floor to like yeah yeah Oh, what was that sci-fi show too, where they had like the big 3D fringe, titles that were like fringe titles? Forget it. That was, that was uh, the best. That was uh, Andrew Kramer, video co-pilot, did all those. That's right. And look at him now. Now he's in Hollywood. Yeah, that man. He had Andrew Kramer has to be one of those like success stories where he literally. This is pre YouTube, right? You got to go to his website and watch a shitty little QuickTime where he's teaching you stuff. And then, like, you turn around and he's applying that exact same thing to Lost and Fringe and whatever. And you're like, wait a second. 
I know that footprint. Yep. That's like, I don't know. I commend so much like people like that, even for you of doing this podcast and not getting paid to do this podcast and like being like, let me put information out there that my industry purposefully hides. The the fact that like there's people who are doing that, I think is such like a special component that keeps like that younger generation hungry and informed and knowing like what's going on. Because I owe probably a lot of my career to someone like Andrew Kramer or like Indie Mogul or like all these sure. people who were like very early teaching me filmmaking when the only way to learn about filmmaking was these like special features on DVDs. But like those, even then, like, I don't know how they got a couple million dollars for this movie. So like, I can barely even come close to that. It was these people who were like, oh no, here's how you do it. And it costs you nothing. Yeah. Uh, Stu Mashowitz. Stu Mashowitz. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, All those guys over here. It was like the creative cow and like all these like red giant people. Like there was so much like knowledge going out which i guess is that now on like tiktok of like transitions and all these things but i think there it was it was still rooted in filmmaking so maybe that's changing and and content is kind of that new king that people are teaching about but i think there's still people out there who are trying to tell these secrets yeah well and to your point about this podcast i literally was like i don't I came up on special features like DVD special features are what actually got me like really excited about filmmaking because that's what made it feel accessible. I know a lot of people talk about like even Molly and Max, like you see that and you go, fuck, that's like an indie film that looks really good. That feels accessible. But until I hear how they did it, I don't it still feels out of reach, you know, so watching the special features for like the Matrix obsessively and seeing how like. I can't remember the dude's name, but he's obviously famous now. But the guy who invented the bullet tie remedy, he's like, I don't know. I just had to put a shit ton of cameras together like that, you know, that. Um, and then we did like morph what, what it would now we would call a morph cut, um, you know, fascinating and makes it feel. And then DVD special features started to become marketing campaigns. They were just interviews, you know, or they're like, oh, it was really great to work with this person. And there was no nuts and bolts. The I think it's the special features for. It might be Moon or it might be one of the like alien films, like the newer alien films or something. But it's like, I'd have to find this because I've referenced it a few times. But it's like a, a guy with a DV cam and you he's like filming people arguing with each other about stuff. And I'm like, you would never see that on like a no. Disney Blu-ray, you know, like an actual conversation where people are yelling at each other about creative differences. It's like... You learn so much based on that, A, what not to do, but B, like having that be a, a real, co- or the Lord of the Rings 12 hour BTS, yeah. like was very instrumental. And you see it and it's like raw and you're on set. I was just saying to someone, if there was like a Heart of Darkness documentary style thing on the Fast and Furious movies, like between oh. the politics of the stars and like how insane making those movies is, like. God, it would be so informative to know what it's like to work at that level of Hollywood. Oh, yeah. I mean, Heart of Darkness, we watched that in film school. And about halfway through it, it's a long ass documentary. So I think we watched it in two parts. But like halfway through it, I forgot it was a documentary about making the film. I, I for a minute, I thought I was watching a documentary about Vietnam. Like it's it is a brutal uh, process they went through. To but like it teaches film. you how crazy it is making movies like it's honestly such a essential watch for someone to be like oh this is not a glamorous job like it is absurd what happens to those 
key members and the below the line people that I think, again, to your point, like the more and more marketing that comes out that like I watch behind the scenes of Mission Impossible. I'm like, yeah, it's almost like watching Entourage where like this looks like such a fun job and like it's going to be so cool. And I'm going to see all this like fun stuff that it's like kind of no, like people are pulling their hair out. It's kind of questionable. Well, and the special features all get like something Todd Vizieri on Twitter's talk about, pardon me, all the time is like how all the special features are touched up now. You're not seeing behind the scenes photograph, you know, like the one he's brought up a lot. I've seen is gray screen where they will get rid of the like they'll they'll desat the green screen so that it doesn't. Right. Look. I don't really know why they I assume it's so that you can't use their assets later. But, you know, whatever, or it's just not distracting to the audience, but it's like that's. Oh, but the point was Dune was actually a green screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The the brown screen was just a marketing ploy. Yeah. Uh, or sand screen, I guess they called it. Um but uh to what I was gonna say was I started this podcast to supplement the lack of special features in the world, amongst other things. But um I think I wanna start I wanna start a special feature streamer. Like Masterclass is great. You know, the Todd Howard one or the Ron Howard one and the the um um David Lynch one are both fucking excellent and everyone should watch them. But if we just had like a Netflix for special features, I bet, I bet the rights to those things are dirt cheap. Yeah. You know, like just, just let me watch me. I want to watch just a collection of them. That's, I got so many Blu-rays just because, you know, I don't even care about the movie that much, but I did want to know how they made it. So you got to wait for it to go. I know you'll just have to like fight Criterion Collections, Blu-ray sales for your streaming service, but. I feel like That's that would true. be amazing. I would I would love that. I think like even just knowing like those resources would be incredible. I remember watching like Dinner for Five and being like, how is this like not taught everywhere for just like they're off the cuff talking about making movies in a way that's so hard to find. Yeah. Well, and then Variety's tried to do it with their roundtable discussions, but they're still they're too polished. Dinner for so Five was polished. such a Having Kevin Smith sit next to like uh, John Favreau and you know pre Marvel John Favreau and like who I, I just remember uh, just random fucking people that probably oh like Quentin or whoever you know just it yep. it, it was just a fascinating to see them all bounce off each other. Yeah, let's do it. If you want to start a special yeah, features yeah. program, I'm game. I think there's right. like yeah, there's so many people that would be cool to just see like sit down and like shoot the shit that. I don't know. I don't know many places that I'm seeing that type of content on a high level. Maybe they're not allowed to. Maybe it's like you get to a certain level and Marvel's, Marvel's like everything is training now. You're not allowed to like be off the cuff anymore. I would love to sign an NDA to look at the NDA that those people sign. <laughs> yes. Yes. Just to know, because like everyone makes the joke about how whenever they're on a late night show, they've got the Disney red dot on their forehead, you know, the the laser scope. And I'm just like, what is it? What are they signing away? Like it's because we all know don't talk about it. But like, what is it specifically? You know? Yeah. We will sue you for however much this movie made. You know? Yeah, it must be insane. First back then it was like a free for all. That like it didn't matter, which is even amazing that like I think Mandalorian was the first time I saw like the our part of the process get like revealed in a way that is super mainstream. Like the fact there's a show that is technically special features about making Mandalorian. And it's kind of nerdy, 
is pretty wild to me. Like, I would love to know if that actually hits like a general audience of people who are watching that. Because a lot of people know what LED screens are now. They don't right. know how it actually works or how to do it proper. And, and it is, again, a lot of marketing. But it's kind of amazing to see that people care how these movies are made the same way that, yeah, I know Tom Cruise does his own stunts now. Like, that's not something that I would ever have to know if I was in the like general public. Right. Well, and part of it, I think, obviously, as we're saying, marketing, you know, if you know it's really Tom Cruise or, you know, if, you know, they use this cool new technology, I think the average person is interested in interesting shit, even if it has nothing to do. Like, I've gotten sucked down rabbit holes on, like, Chinese cooking. There's a great YouTube channel. It's like Chinese cooking demystified or something. And it's like, I don't have a really strong, like, fire walk situation, but I get real fascinated by all that. Uh, and I think the same is true with film, but it does also, I think the flip side of it, going back to the Todd Vizieri of it all, is like when people think they know what's going on, they've seen the marketing version of the behind the scenes. They then feel real confident to talk shit. <laughs> you know, yes. ah, it's, they just fucking did the volume or whatever. You're like, no, nope, actually, that was all real. And they're like, whatever. I didn't like it. There's too much, C as, you, as you were saying, there's too much CG. And you're like, there's CG in everything. It's yeah. ev It's everything. Yeah. So I hate to break it to you. Uh, these movie stars do not look like that in person. Oh, what? The new uh, 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 Indiana Jones? He's, he, that's not uh, what an 87-year-old back in time like. to film him? Right. Well, that, okay, so that was actually something the last guy I was interviewing was saying that he shot uh, a few episodes of Mrs. Marvel. And I, I, I want to say that I don't know if he was talking about that specifically, but I think he was. Uh, just so I don't get anyone in trouble. But he was saying that they film like they film the thing and then they film a plate with no one in it and then they'll film a plate with the actor with a green screen behind him and then they'll do like multiple takes of the exact same setup so that uh, Marvel has in the future options to replace people or move people around or relight or whatever or place someone in a different film later or something like that. And it was really interesting to hear how granular a huge company like that is versus what we do every day is like, no, the person's there. Yeah. You know, that's I, like, I would never even think about that. No. And even that is like, that's something that we did find also working on led screens that I feel like on your side, cinematographers in these VFX heavy movies, you're kind of like not really doing your full job because the visual effects companies are taking over a lot of that lift. I mean, obviously concept art is an influence on both ends, but I think once we got into LED world, it was like, you are controlling that final image if you are striving somewhere near final pixel. At least you get to be on set where you know what things are going to look like versus green screen territory. I feel like I see that glaze go over people's eyes when you get on set because you're just kind of, it's not pretty to your eyes and it's you have no idea what it's going to look like and you just kind of like disappear versus now it's like oh you're actually getting having fun being like move this move this change this like this and all that right. world well and i bet i mean it's been set up a bajillion times uh but green screen pure green screen for actors is miserable yeah because like yeah we're using our imagination and that's fun but i think actors need to use their imaginations emotionally and they can't be bothered to also imagine that there's like you're in front of a Japanese food restaurant or something like that. You know, like that's, it would be nicer if they could just look up and see it. Yes. And it's right there. But I, that's why I'm like, the same goes for, and this is why I think 
anyone above the line does have to start knowing how this CG world works is because that is so much of the image now. So like you should know also what environments you're putting those actors in and what's the lighting and what's the feel and like you're shepherding that image even earlier now that before you were just shepherding what came out of camera. Now it's literally what comes out of that initial world and scene and props and all these things that I feel like is really cool to see happen because yeah, now you're giving that to the actors. So there's less of the, like only the writer and the actor and director might know what's going on. Now it's like the person controlling the image should also be a part of what's going on earlier. And then now when we get on set, we're all kind of sharing that same brain that I feel like green screen. It's like, none of us are sharing the same brain, like maybe like a couple people, but not the whole crew. Well, and the other one I've heard is that like, a lot of productions will just say, oh, put a green screen up. And then the artist ends up rotoing everything anyway. Yeah. Like it doesn't help at all. I know. That's what like the sad part is of so much of this is like on these big movies, they're still redoing everything. Everything is still mostly CG. Yeah. One thing that I learned, I think it was from Stu, but I heard you mention it in that before and afters interview was the fact that you, when you get taught roto initially, you think like, oh, I'm going to put a boundary box around the person and just manipulate it and it's like no it's like one circle for the ear one circle for the head one circle for the neck one circle for the you know it's like each roto is a connection of like 15 20 25 shapes that you then have to move around it's not like selects although these days we do have a little bit of a select subject mask which is uh pretty fucking cool you know i know it's cool it's somewhat of like a disservice because i feel like even to the point of like video co-pilot it's like i would learn something from Andrew Kramer and then that's exactly how I would approach it and like I know like all these people who taught were really good about being like you can do it whatever way you want but I'm like I learned it how you taught me that's exactly how I do it and it wasn't until I learned under like a flame artist which is a very specific way of working that it was like okay don't care about how you're going to do it think about in reality how would this thing get done and that completely changed how I approached every form of visual effects. Uh, are you able to expand on that a little bit? Because I'm actually working on a project where I have to, I'm working on an article where I have to discuss Flame and I don't have a fucking clue. So how, how what are you talking about there? So Flame is very node-based. So it's kind of similar to how you're seeing like a nuke or a, like maybe fusion work where everything is like this to this to that. Like we're putting pieces together it's not like layer based so i feel like layer based you're just stacking on top of that original image and you're using like blend modes and you're using mats and you're doing cutouts and you're just kind of like somewhat stacking things to get to that final product here it's kind of like you can do anything you can like isolate sections you can like really control what's going on in that full image so a lot of the ideology is like if you're trying to composite an explosion in after effects i'm doing a bunch of blend modes and I'm doing motion blur and I'm doing like uh, probably edge blurring. I'm doing some like light effects on top. I'm maybe like adding smoke atmosphere. I'm like kind of making that image. I'm like just adding things on top versus a lot of the flame ideas like, okay, if there was an explosion, what would happen? And you'd be like, okay, there's an initial light source. So that light is going to go here, but it's going to have to wrap around the body. So I should make that body either 3D or cut it out so that the light can wrap. And then if there's a fire component, then it's going to add a flicker. Okay, that flicker is going to hit your window or it's going to hit your beard or it's going to hit the wall. And then it's like breaking down each thing in the scene, which 
is really cool because from a cinematography perspective, that's your brain can probably think that way really well. My brain did not think that way because I was taught in this After Effects style where I was like, let me just add as much stuff as possible until it just looks cool, mm. which is a lot of these lower budget visual effects things. And for some reason, for me, these Marvel movies are starting to look this way. We're just like, how do I add so much on top of this original image that it just starts looking like mushy and weird? Same thing with uh, at least the footage I've seen from The Flash is looking yeah. very compy. Yeah. It's but, just like, there's a weird look. It just isn't natural. It's like almost this like uncanny valley thing, which it was really cool yeah. to like, same to that rotoscoping thing. If I rotoscope like you as a whole, every frame, I'm adjusting that whole drawing of you. So that skeleton is just changing every time. And that's not how your body naturally moves. So once you do break things by your arm and your face and your ears, now I'm matching each part of your body so I can guarantee that mask is going to match what the human body is doing. So it's always going to look more natural. And the guy I trained under, this guy Dan Bartolucci, he was doing like the social network face replacement. He was making like Captain America look skinny. He was doing all this stuff that's like realistic, but it's that hidden world of CG. And I think that's where I got into beauty work is a lot of like, okay, in real life, what would the thing be that's on this and then now you're doing yeah you're doing visual effects but no one knows it's visual effects right yeah i mean i i name dropped fincher way too fucking much on this podcast but uh i've always appreciated his uh i guess it's not always subtractive but uh using vfx in a way that enhances you know cre creates the world in such a way that you don't question it but is absolutely touched you know adding what was it in Mind Hunter? You know, getting rid of track, adding snow here, adding a couple trees because they're supposed to be in the Midwest or uh, uh, the East Coast and not the Midwest or whatever. You know, um, I think is a. It feels more artistic to me in in a way, but not not. I'm not trying to be like reductive or anything, but it it, it that feels more like a magic trick than making Superman fly. Yeah, and but then it's like that's like using that technology for you, which I really love that even the things now that I've been able to do on these indie movies, it's because you can just kind of like find a tech company making a tool and they're probably doing it for free because they're going to make a bunch of money later on it and use that tool to accomplish your one specific thing. And then now like, that's so cool that that's even an option that you can just pull these tools and do that. Like, yeah, yeah. Unreal is exactly what you're saying. Like they probably had no idea that us filmmakers were going to jump on this and use it this way, but we're, <laughs> using this tool that like, I mean, if a film person made it, it probably would cost a fortune. Like right. to think how much those like storyboarding softwares cost. Autodesk. Oh my God. Even a year. All of these. Yeah, it was absurd. Like a flame machine is like a proprietary hardware, like a subscription, like all this stuff on top that was just like, who the hell's paying for this? Yeah. The, I, I did have two thoughts. One, I did see, uh, you know, the Corridor Digital Boys. They're doing fun work on the internet. But one thing they highlighted was for Thor Love and Thunder. I didn't know this rig existed. I probably have it in an American cinematographer I skipped. But um, this rig where they had six key lights rigged. Did you see this? Mm -mm. Oh, so, okay. So they did in, uh, did you see Love and Thunder? Yeah. So, you know, the battle with Christian Bale on that moon that's like in black and white. So yep. the idea was that the moon was real tiny. So the sun was constantly moving. Um, because the thing was spinning. And so, uh, they had 
on this, they had the moon in reality and then they're just a bunch of blue screen, but they had six or eight key lights, massive key lights that were strobes and they would just spin constantly. And then they shot the whole thing and you couldn't tell, like when you look at a video, it's just, they just look like they're on, you know? Um, and then they shot the whole thing at like 567 frames a second on a phantom so that each frame in a 24 frame timeline had a different key light. And then they could choose based on where the sun was in the final comp, where that key light was supposed to be coming from. And in the video, they were like, well, I don't see the thing moving. It's not really like giving enough. Like it's, it feels like a waste of time. And I'm, it, but in my head, I was like, yeah, but you, they don't, they're not going to know where they are in, in physical 3d space, whatever, until the final comp where they're going to set the key light. It's not so much that it was moving, you know, but they could also like, you know, key in a little bit of extra. There's one thing they point out where like, Thor brings his hammer close to Christian Bale's face and it lights up. But the only reason they had that really, really uh, realistic looking light was because they had, they could kind of fade in this extra key light that was hitting him from this side from a different frame, you know, which I thought that was very complicated, but a cool application of a relatively modest technology that we've had, you know, high speed. Yeah, that's really cool. Are you seeing a lot of people on the lighting side take advantage of this? technology because i feel like led was obviously a massive leap that destroyed a lot of the the products that were out there but are you seeing people use like tech for lighting in a way um, that's really cool the big one i think that everyone well so the astera tubes changed everything being able yes, to have yeah. you know uh everyone and their mother talks about those things and and rightly so they're a great addition um but i think it's honestly LED makes it so that you can set the lights and then work from the dimmer. And then the dimmer now can be wireless. You can have wireless DMX, which sometimes will cut out because stages are like a giant Faraday cage and there's way too much 2.4 um, uh, interference and stuff. But I, I think it's mostly... To answer your question, I don't think really. I think they're all just workflow things that have made things a little easier, but I don't think they change. This is another thing I was just talking to the, the previous guy about was like the, we, we were trying to figure out what like the biggest change to the, the language of cinema was. And we decided on the steady cam mm. because that actually added, as he said, a verb to the lexicon that we didn't have before. You know, one thing that he mentioned was in a film, the guy invented the steady cam, uh, there's a crane shot. And the crane shot happened and then he stepped off and the camera kept moving and no one in the film world had seen a crane suddenly keep going. That didn't exist. Yeah. You couldn't, you physically couldn't do that. Whereas LED lighting is more uh, a thing of convenience, but only now are we seeing lights that are powerful enough to, you know, on any commercial you'll ever see, you're still using an M18. You're still, you know, using a, 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 those giant grids. What are they called? The nine buys mole things. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that there's a huge leap in lighting technology beyond convenience and workflow. You know, it's yeah. not like it's not like going from green screen to LED where it's like, yeah. oh, this is this is changing the uh, the way we can consider these types of shots. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, that would be really interesting if LED panels for display like LED screens got to the color fidelity that lighting needed. And that well, probably, yeah, would be a massive jump. Like if a full LED stage had the brightness that you could actually use fully, like, yeah, that actually is a big jump. But yeah, it's interesting to think that it really, 
LED lights are just a thing in our film world that was huge, but actually like for filmmaking is not that crazy. Yeah. Well, I remember, I remember asking someone about like the early volumes and they're like, oh, if we want a key light, we'll just put a big white square, you know, just off camera. And I'm like, but it's not going to be, it'll like, I think it was a Mandalorian thing, but it's like in the helmet. Sure. But it's, it's not a big thing I've noticed with modern cinematography, especially on the lower budget side is everyone's using these LEDs that aren't that punchy. So everything, even if it's, you're not getting the contrast that looks quote unquote cinematic, you know, you do actually need a punchier light. KinoFlow makes something called the mimic which is not good enough to use to film on, but it's a very bright, very accurate LED thing that you can push video content to. So nice. you get really accurate, um, you know, whatever, key, key lighting, quote unquote, with the environment. Um, the Mimic is a pretty cool little thing, but again, you wouldn't necessarily use it for anything other than supplementing a volume. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm somewhat getting convinced that this transcription stuff might be a massive jump for filmmaking only because I just I just went to Italy and filmed this documentary and there's so much Italian in it that I'm able to transcribe it and translate it and I lost sync for a bunch of my time code from my mics to my video and I was able to just like search words and find it in my audio to then find it in my video and I like did this for like while I was doing an assembly and then I just was like this is insane that I am yeah. being able the premiere to think. Yeah. Uh, the premiere one is so, so it's a little iffy. Um, but there's one that's for DaVinci that you can use as a plugin. Oh, is that one better? AI's okay. whisper and open AI's is a little better, at least for what I was using for translating. Um, mm. the premiere one is like incredibly convenient. Um, mm -hmm. but the open AI one was getting some like deep, Italian people in the background words that I was able to pull to sync and find clips that I was like, this is absurd to me that this is even an option. Yeah, that I've, I've started using, uh, I have this like repeat corporate client where we do a lot of interviews and uh, I'll send them, I just send them the transcripts and then they'll edit the script and send it back and go edit this. But on this one, I've done it through Premiere which I wish could kick out a better, I know some people at Adobe, I got to ask them to do this because it's like, it's so granular. It's like from second five to second seven, they said this sentence. I'm like, can you just give me a slightly more spaced out one, you know, paragraphs, but um, I'm going to get that script back and I'm, I'm going to see if it's worth it just like using their script editing tool, you know, uh, and just like making my assembly that way. Um, yeah, and just paste it in. Yeah. Are there any, uh, this, I was going to ask you this earlier. I know we're going a little over time, but, uh, and are there any tools uh, we've talked a lot about the difficulties of, of VFX and, and whatnot, which I think are important to highlight, but are there any tools that make your job easier? Things that like you, you know, these days you wouldn't want to live without. So you don't want to have this whole podcast be cynical against yeah. the commercial <laughs> world. And I can be so cynical too. So, uh, or I should say skeptical. Yeah, cynic thinks everything sucks. I question a lot, which can come off as cynicism. Yes. Um, I mean, a lot of it, like a lot of it's getting really crazy. Like the transcription thing is genuinely like I'm already addicted to it. Um, Unreal Engine was big. Unreal Engine was a little bit of like uh, uh, yesterday's miracles, today's expectation. I think I had like a little too much marketing on it. So like the people that ask stuff from it would ask a little too much. Um, I, I like miss this old world of visual effects. 
where it was like someone would ask me to do something and I could be like, oh, technically that's impossible. And they would just like not ask me again. And that was my way of curating just like a really bad note. I think things like Unreal Engine with that amount of marketing, like people know I can actually do that. So I'm not allowed to do that technique anymore. Right. So I do have good and bad for the fact that that program can actually do everything, but to optimize it and make it proper is a little bit more work. Um, I just got these Insta mics that for documentary stuff, they're like these self-recording microphones that sync up with each other. And that like, I could not have done this. Like I did like a one man being me in Italy filming just with a camera, just for like exploratory work for a documentary. And I had these little mics that just, I could magnet clip them to people's shirts, hit record, walk away, pull it off, stop recording. Um, that was insane because I they was time like, code to the camera and they time code to the camera. You could put a little tentacle to the app. Uh, you can sync them up so you can have multiple ones running at the same time. Uh, that blew my mind because I was terrified of like, I can't have a microphone. I can obviously have an onboard, but like what happens when I walk away? Because it's again, just me. What are the chances that I'm going to have the camera always next to talent? So right. that was like a mind-blowing piece of technology of like a small self-recording microphone uh, that you could just magnetic on talent. It's called Instamic? Instamic, yeah. It's like a small little company making them. Damn. Because I know like at, uh, Deity just came out with these mic packs that can record or transmit, I learned, because uh, Electrosonic has the patent on recording and transmitting, which is stupid. But... um. Uh, but yeah, same thing. They'll they'll time code match to their TC1 time code boxes that you would have on your cameras and their slate. They have a Bluetooth slate and then it all goes to the app. So you can just sync all the mic packs and the slate and all the cameras with one button on the phone. And it's like stupid accurate. Like I've I've used their stuff for a while now uh, or those the, the time code boxes in the slate. And um, there's like ostensibly no drift after like two days. Nice. Maybe like a frame, you know, That's um, really cool. Those. So, yeah, kind of I'll have to look into those Insta mics, though, because I have been doing more for Pro Video Coalition, the company that like distributes this podcast. Um, I cover like NAB and Cinegear and do journalism. And when we just did Cinegear, I had a lav, but then I had a shotgun on the camera that my cameraman was using just because I didn't want to. I was trying to be a lot more conversational with the interviews. And I didn't want to stop them and be like, can you do this? And then maybe they accidentally yes. hit the mute button when they're putting it down, you know, and it gets gets them a little too in interview mode, which everyone, yep. you know, new shooters are going to be doing those. They've got, yes. I want to do something else. Yeah, this is like a cool option for that, just to like slap it on talent and walk away. Um, it, it's kind of like the tentacle one that exists, but without the like need for being near it because it self-records to itself. It's like, yeah, right. it's, it's like slapping a tiny zoom on someone's neck, which is really cool. That's, uh, you know what the other, the other technology that's really cool right now is the Adobe podcast enhance. Have you been using that? I, I even like that and like Descript. Yeah. I'm like, this is insane. Like, I, I'm wondering if that's going to happen to editing soon and who's going to do that is like for what's happening to podcast editing. I'm curious when that's going to happen to like NLEs. So that's a conversation I've had. Uh, I think so like po the, the thing is with like a podcast edit, right? It's very uh, 
not linear. What's the word I'm looking for? Very specific. Cut to this angle, cut to this angle, cut out the middle noise. For an for editing a short or whatever, anything that's not that or commercial, I still I I can't fathom at this moment an AI that understands context and when you might want to emotionally cut to something else or emotionally leave a longer beat or whatever, you know? Um, but it is, it'll be interesting. I, the one, the like super scientific part of me is fascinated by all this. And then the artist side of me is like, we're supposed to automate tasks, not creativity. Yeah. And, but we live in, in capitalism. So we're always going to automate everything and not give everyone less work. We're just going to make people work twice as much. <laughs> you could have had free time, but now you're, you just get paid less because you only have to push a button or whatever the fuck. I know. Like, and that's like the issue of like the generative AI part from like a financial perspective sucks, but from like a workflow perspective is like incredible. Like I was making a sizzle reel for something and I could only find vertical portraits of this person that I needed. And I needed again, a, a two, three, nine horizontal portrait. And so I just used Adobe's new generative AI to build out the whole rest of that frame. And I was like, wow, that task would have been so stupid for me to do by hand because it would have taken me so long for something that it's a sizzle. It should not be taking me this long to do. So it's like right. those versions of using that technology, I think are starting to become amazing for filmmakers for, yeah, making money like bread and butter filmmaking. I don't know what's going to happen, but as far as like using these tools to like make actual long form videos and movies and stuff with intentionality, it's, it's truly incredible. Well, and for someone like me, who is not a VFX artist, like the magic mask in resolve, like, yeah, takes forever, but I'm just dealing with a music video right now where the, the skin tone is the exact same color as the wall. And they're like, but the but the 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 actors are in shadow, so their skin looks kind of ashy. But the walls lit, but the tones are the same. So when I try to do pull a qualifier, didn't work. Any kind of qualifier didn't work. And then the any basic masking that I did looked kind of shit. And I was just like, I don't want to spend. I'm doing this as a favor. Like I'm not gonna spend the. I was. I told them I was like, it is what it is. And then someone, funnily enough, on the Adobe team reminded me that magic mask existed, and I was like. <clears throat> I can fix this. Like, I don't have to spend a lot of time. I can just literally draw a squiggle and then it knows that it's, it, it should grab bodies. And it's even a, it's like a close up of like a shoulder down to the waist too. It's not even like, there's no con context clues that it's a person, but I, it just figured it out. Then I was like, that's see, that's a cool, that's a cool fucking tool. Like, yeah, like that part of it's like, we're getting in a crazy spot. Like, I don't know how that's going to change. Like, like if you're a filmmaker with the big ego, I don't know what happens to you because like there's going to be kids who are going to be making the craziest stuff like the fact i remember seeing like blender videos but i was just like students using blender and i was like forget it like this world of visual effects and cg like just changed and then now i feel like every week i see something new that i'm like oh forget it this changed even crazier yeah the blender man i used blender to i have a 3d printer and i've used blender to try to make basic ass shapes in for printing and i can't like some of this who's that guy who he he's like crushes it at photogrammetry um he i think he has like two episodes out of this thing but he's all in blender and he'll basically like just take a photo 
of a thing and then just make the 3D geometry based on the photo and put that in the back. Do you not? I'll have to fucking send it to you. It's so crazy. Yes, send it, yeah. uh, but it, because it's a photo, it looks like it doesn't tax the system because it's just basic squares and rectangles and circles, right? But because it's essentially, uh, essentially photogrammetry, it looks very good. Like it looks very real for how little um, asset management and how little, uh, how inexpensive com computationally everything he's doing is. Um, yeah, that's insane. Yeah, it's real. Yeah. I'll have to send you that. Uh, yeah, that side of it is is truly so cool to see that I'm like the fact that on a laptop you can do this stuff in Blender. And there's people like our world of Andrew Kramer who are making Blender tutorials that are really impressive. That same guy does. He yeah. does. Every, he's always explained exactly what he's doing and in kind of a fun way. He's kind of a goofy dude. But uh, yeah, that's I'll, I'll definitely send you that because that's... Uh, I mean, it's even for you, it's like if you have this barrier to entry for Blender, like I just saw someone put like a chat GPT plugin in Blender that you can literally type out, make a sphere now add more points, now change the surface level, now add a material. And so it's like, it's just going to become text-based. And then again, that barrier to entry gets even easier that like, you don't even have to touch the buttons. You just talk to it and it'll probably start making it. So that's exactly, I was about to say when we were talking about uh, uh, transcription, I have been blown away at how accurate the TikTok transcriber is. Like for some reason it can't figure out Rex seven oh nine. It are, it always does R E X seven O the letter O nine. But uh, nine times out of ten, it fucking nails everything, including like colloquialisms or like proper nouns and stuff. And I'm like, how come like a digital anarchy's transcriber like can't do this? Yeah. Like can we can we figure out? But to your point about Blender, like that would be really good for me being able to type in what I want instead of having to go like, is it Boolean? What does Boolean do? You know. Um, but at some point you're going to be able to just grab your microphone and be like, make me a sphere with a hole through it and then make it look like a donut and it'll just go boop, yep. boop, boop. Thank you. Which I, that's the part that gives me the confidence. Like once we get to that level of ease, I think that's the pendulum where I feel good again. Cause you're going to have these like studio execs and clients who can't communicate their ideas and they're going <laughs> to try that and it's going to be horrible. And then we'll get hired again. Yep. So I was like, that's, I'm like, let's race to that point. Cause then. Then it becomes awesome for us again. Then it'll be very easy for people to try it and fail rather than right now where they like they know enough to be dangerous. They don't actually know how to do it yet. Well, and and to the point of having like value or being hired, one thing that I've said and was mirrored again in the last conversation I just had. I don't normally reference the previous conversation, but it happened 30 minutes before I started talking to you. So it's fresh on my mind. Um, and that is, you know. The example we used was if you want a piece of furniture, Ikea is there for you, right? It looks yep. clean. It works. It's inexpensive. Hell yeah, brother. But if you want something with value, you're going to go to a carpenter to make you something and it, and it's going to be more expensive and it might even look similar. Hopefully not, but it might look similar, but because a human made it, it inherently carries value. And I think that's going to be the case. People are so excited about, you know, the AI revolution or whatever, but I think it's tech bros who are uncreative. And they're thinking that they can have the cheat code to, I, for some reason, it feels like people are now looking at artists as like the bourgeoisie. They're like, oh, you fucking people in your ivory towers being creative. And it's like, okay, well, you do it. And then they're like, well, yeah. I, luckily I have AI, so you can keep going to school. I'm going to do this. And I'm like, yeah, but if you say, oh, look at this cool prompt I made in, in mid journey, 
oh yeah, that is objectively cool, but it's not going to carry value. It's not going to carry the same, you know, photography did not kill painting. Paintings still go for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Sometimes your mid journey art will not because everyone knows that you can, they theoretically can do it I know your point about like being knowing enough to be dangerous, but, uh, at the end of the day, when, when I hire you to make me something that will always carry more value than, and you're, maybe you do use those tools to supplement it. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think the value of the artist is going to go down. However, there may be less artists because some people are good at one specific thing and then that thing gets phased out, you know, um, in the, in the, in the most crude sense, you know, the, the, um, automation of manual labor, um, yeah. But which unfortunately is the part that that's usually our bread and butter. That's like the right. negative of now, but probably the positive mental health that'll come from us not having to do corporate videos anymore. We'll probably yeah. be a lot happier as people. Yeah. Not making a, as much money though. Yeah. Well, but that's the thing. Those, those who I don't want to say end up on the other side, but the, the people who, um, I don't believe that people inherently are skilled at any of this. I think I'm, I'm of the mind that anything can be learned, um, within reason. Uh, but those who apply themselves and cause I am not a bootstrapper guy, but those who, uh, apply themselves to learn a craft and, and get there, I think their, their work will have more value, you know, yeah. versus people who, for instance, the editors who just want to learn, as you were saying, the, the cool transitions, you know, it's like, that's a, okay, that's a very swish thing to learn but uh that will not get you a job you yeah because because i can also just find the TikTok that taught me the swish transitions but it's knowing how to apply those things and how to be a good man something we didn't touch on but we always touch on with the dp conversations is just working with clients that's fuck they don't teach you that in film school <laughs> that's not something you can automate i keep seeing these ads that are like oh you can automate emails and i'm like i would never yeah. Automate, have an automated response to any client that would, I would lose business for sure. Yep. That's a thousand percent like do one wedding and try and automate that workflow of working with a bride or a parent or a groom. And you will immediately see the like nuances of like how humans work with each other when you're doing like service industry or you're doing like the other side of like craftsmanship. It's, yeah. Automated bartenders. I know everyone's like, Ooh, that'll be cool. Fuck. No, it won't. No. Oh, no. your drink is perfect. Great. But like, who are you going to, that's yeah, that's going to, what are you going to beat up the robot? <laughs> <laughs> Can I talk to yeah, you? I am the manager. This is, it's just going to be such a confusing time for it, but I'm like, so, so much of it's cool that like we are still with it. Like I think about, like my landlord, she was in her, uh, her late nineties when she passed away and she would tell me how she was in accounting and then the computer came out and she just retired. She was just like, I'm not dealing with this. Right. And she just retired and she didn't have to learn any of it. And I'm like, I'm curious when that point will happen for me. Cause I'm still at the place where I'm like, I'm excited to learn these tools. I'm definitely overwhelmed by the amount of tools but I'm excited to learn them, to use them for what I want to do. But I definitely think there's so much coming out and so much changing that I see that point for myself where I'm just like, I'm going to go off the grid and make a movie that I don't even touch the internet and I use no presets and I right. use nothing digital and I buy a bunch of film and I'm just like over all this stuff because it's just like the rate of these things coming out is just so fast. 
I will say, though, since you are ostensibly on the ground floor, those people tend to have far more longevity, right? Because you, you, if you start with the thing, you will always be the expert because you will always have more experience than everyone else. You know, uh, getting into cinematography right when the digital camera came out was, I mean, I learned on 16 millimeter film, but the 5D put uh, cinematography, so to speak, in everyone's hands and the, and the signal to noise ratio got insane. Um, and, you know, but uh, budgets, not even budgets, but just pay grades for anyone who's not union shot to the floor. You know, because they could for a while there was the whole, oh, my nephew can do that. And then they realized they couldn't kind of the same thing you're saying about if you could talk to the blender and then realize you have no fucking clue how to communicate appropriately. But um, yeah, but if if those filmmakers who had been with Amherst since day one, you know, you know, back in the let's let's say the 70s when everything really started to take off in the modern era, they're still the experts no matter what. So I think you'll be you'll be in good shape going forward. I hope so. So I can hope for as long as I can keep this uh, people around me who are telling me that these things are good and keeping me on track and not overwhelmed. Because I feel like even on your end, like the amount of gear that must come out all the time must make you feel like you need these things to be better. And I, I'm so thankful to have artists and people around me who hold me accountable of like, you don't need to know all these things or like, don't worry about that stuff. Like, stay on track, do this thing, work on this. Like, that's the people that feel like are so essential. I will say I 100% agree with you, but I will say on my end, I I was a huge gear nerd for a while. And then I've gotten to the point now, thankfully, where hand me a camera, hand me a couple lights. I know I can do the same thing no matter what. Um, sometimes it's a new thing is cool, convenient. Like when neutral density filters came back to being in camera because they were back in the day and then they got rid of them for whatever reason. That was like something I don't want to live without. But um, yeah, it's, it's now any, literally any camera, like I know, I know younger filmmakers never want to hear this, but like, just, you don't, you do not need the newest thing. You don't. Cause it's, it's focus on writing, write the damn yes. thing first, you know, yes. <laughs> get, get a really good production designer and yeah. that'll make your, your film look way better than if you bought, uh, you know, a Komodo X or whatever. Um, yeah, the the camera technology. I honestly, I feel like it's plateaued. I think camera companies are starting to make less and less cameras. Um, lens companies are exploding. Yeah, a lot of lens companies, but they're all coming from like the same kind of Chinese factories. Again, not as a pejorative. That's just you know that that seems to be who's um, creating the most. And there's again, it's not super cool. It's just super efficient. Yes, you know, a very nice full frame prime that doesn't have any breathing. Nice and sharp. Not a lot of character to it, but that is a, you know, a workhorse lens for anyone. The In my head, the Nisi Athena is what I'm thinking of because I just interviewed that guy. But um, yeah, I think ca finally camera technology has leveled out where we can start talking about the artistry of it again and less about, ooh, 4K, 12K, fucking, you know, raw, not raw, global shutter, blah, blah, blah. Although so for every once in a while when like when a camera comes out, yeah, it's like, oh, we needed this global shutter or like the FX3 is getting that same buzz where it's like, this is the big camera. Like it keeps being this, like, I guess it's, yeah, it's, it's to your point it's of marketing, almost people. all these things, marketing. Yeah. The marketing is pushing this in a way that is so unique now. Well, and the FX3 is just an A7S in a slightly more rugged body. That is it. It has no other features. It doesn't even have shutter angle. It still has the photo shutter speed thing in it. 
and so it, it's it doesn't it also as far as i'm aware unless they patched this out doesn't have true 24p which for some people is not a big deal for me i prefer it uh for certain applications you need it um but yeah it's all marked everyone getting super stoked on the fx3 it's like well you could have bought an a7 and gotten the exact same experience without a few you know mounting holes around it but yeah, it's it's all marketing, man. And I and I work almost exclusively with the PR people and they're all lovely individuals and I love working yeah. with them and I love testing out new gear. But it is at the end of the day like yeah, that's cool, you know? Well, clearly they're good at their jobs cuz it does work and it makes Oh yeah. people talk about it and people have like an understanding for it now. Which yeah, I think DSLRs is such a great version of that mm -hmm. conversation that yeah, when DSLRs came out, I forget what the movie was. There was like a movie on the 7D that I saw in theaters that I was just like, oh yeah, we don't need cinema cameras. And then I remember like filming with one and being like, wow, I really wish I had a cinema camera right now. Like this battery thing kind of sucks. This this handheld does not look good. And it's like, oh yeah, you just got to like lean into the tool, which yeah. I guess it only takes you doing these things to start realizing like what tools are good for what. I mean, the same way that like a GoPro is used on Avengers that you're like, obviously didn't film the movie on a gopro but like one action shot the gopro worked well for that shot and that's like the camera that was used but i feel like yeah, yeah marketing around these tools and this gear at least on the post-production side and the ai side and I'm, I'm sure the the gear side which i'm less in tune with nowadays is just it's very strong well it's an entire industry right on youtube like being a youtuber used to be uh vlogging more or less and now it's at least in the stuff that i see unless you're you know, smarter every day or the slow-mo guys, or I did a thing or whatever, like there's an entire industry around selling products. Yeah. Hey, I've got the new, whatever FX three, and I'm going to talk about it. And that's like that person's channel, you know, Gerald undone, for instance, he's seems like a great guy, never met him, but, uh, you know, ostensibly his channel is, um, if I am now being reductive ads, you know, he, he is doing a form of journalism, you know, breaking down the strengths and weaknesses of any piece of gear, which is valuable. But the industry behind it is ads. He's getting these cameras from the PR department of all of these companies, you know, or the lights or whatever. He's not buying them, certainly. But um, I think when there's a lot of money to be made in that realm, you'll see more, uh, more of it. Maybe that's why special features are so good because they're just, there's no motive. There's yeah. no, like, it's not selling anything. It's not, it's literally just capturing what's going on on set and what people are doing and that's it. It's not selling you anything. It's not pushing anything. It's, yeah, it's just like, that's the type of thing we need to come back. Yeah, well, we'll we'll work on that. I know we've gone uh, about 45 <laughs> minutes over time, but uh I'd love to have you back on and just keep shooting the shit or whatever, but uh, definitely I'll, I'll, I'll keep in touch with you, but um, especially to get that uh, special features streamer off the, off the ground. Yeah. I think, I think it needs to come back of just these beautiful, I guess we got to figure out how it's going to get made and paid for, but I think yeah, yeah. There's, there's something to it of bringing back that form of just telling people what's going on and why it's being done and not having it touched up, keeping it raw. Yeah. Well, actually now, all right, I might cut this part out, but I think you could sell within the streamer, let's say of the special features, you just sell ads to all these other streamers that like, oh, if you liked the BTS on this film, click here to kick over to the other app 
Yeah. And if they don't have the app, it'll just prompt them with a subscription screen. And if, you know, then they'll start fighting for, if let's say this blows up, they'll start fighting for like, oh, we need to get our special features on that thing so that people will subscribe because, you know, it's not about the content anymore. It's all about the subscription. Who said that? Someone was like, the the big problem was these companies went away from selling films and into selling subscriptions. And that's where you see, again, that's where you see their priorities. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have not confidence, but excitement, which can lead to confidence about yes. a, uh, no, I'm with it. Streamer. I'm with it. Cause I'm like, I even think of like, I don't know anything about comic books, but I see all these Marvel movies. And every time I get home, I just go to YouTube and watch videos about the movie I just saw and then learn all this cool stuff about it that I'm like, that kind of is like you watch the movie and then pop over to the menu and then open up the special features. It's like, I am doing that workflow already. Oh, because that's another thing you could add to the streamer is, is start bogarting, bogarting, whatever, start uh, getting some of those content creators who exclusively do those video essays and get them exclusive to your, to the, to the special feature streamer. Yeah. Which you have Alamo draft house out there, right? Uh, we got one in downtown. Yeah. Okay. So like they used to do before every movie have like videos breaking down. So like if you went to fast and furious five, there'd be like, here's what happened in the last four fast and furious movies. And it would be oh, like different nice. people breaking down the movies and doing that. And it was always these like fun little made pieces of content. And then sometimes they would get like actual people in them, like black Panther. They got like real people to break down the importance of that movie and what it means and all these things that I was like, that would be a really cool way of like, yeah, doing special features in that sense. They're actively doing it, but since they went bankrupt less and less. Yeah. Oh yeah. That one in downtown might actually, they opened right before the pandemic. So I think that was like not going to work. I remember Glendale was supposed to have one too, a long time ago. Oh, that's not there. Yeah. That one. I, it was a deal. I mean, it was a big deal when the downtown one came around because um, it's right next to the train stop. Like you could basically get off the train and and walk into the Alamo Draft House. So everyone was like really stoked on that because um, whether people wanted, well, whether people, uh, yeah, I know, right? Fucking New York. Um, whether people in LA want to admit it or or not, whenever convenient transportation happens around you everyone gets excited. Like I live close enough to Santa Monica that like, I can just get on that train and get dropped off in downtown and go to like a hockey game within a hundred yards of that stop. And I do that every time, you know, a buck 50 for a train ride is a lot cheaper than 10 grand for DUI. So, yeah. you know, uh, the more, unfortunately the Olympics are what's forcing all of, uh, the, the fast construction here. So we'll see how that goes. But, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to stay in touch and keep talking. Cause I know I, at a certain point, I have to actually get tortured. So, yes, uh, I'll have well, to let you go. But long podcast day. Well, I started it. Well, that's very much under NDA. I can't say I started the day with something really fucking cool. But uh, yeah, uh, great talking to you, man. And like I said, we'll stay in touch. I'll send you those little adapters too. I'll get your address and I'll send you those uh, film adapters so you can like rent a medium format camera and give her oh, give her a go. That would be awesome. Yeah, and please, anytime you're in New York, reach out. It would be great to grab a drink. And yeah, please let me know if you ever need another person to ramble on the podcast i'm happy to talk too much and get too nerdy for sure man same uh you in la same thing man appreciate it awesome take care brother frame and reference is an owlbot production it's produced and edited by me kenny mcmillan and distributed by pro video coalition as this is an independently funded podcast we rely on support from listeners like you so if you'd like to help you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash frame and ref pod. We really appreciate your support. And as always, thanks for listening.